Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Calling all surgical education junkies, Behind the Knife is looking to add three new fellows to our team this year. We are thrilled to be adding these positions as we've got big plans for the future and want you to be a part of them. We are working on countless projects that will make a real impact on surgical education, like our Trauma Surgery Video Atlas, Comprehensive Student Curriculum, Global Surgery and Innovation Podcast Series, and our Specialty Oral Board Reviews. We are looking for enterprising surgical residents to take the bull by the horns, to build something new and exciting, and to innovate. You will benefit from ample support from the Behind the Knife team, the use of our brand new digital education platform, and access to all of our resources, including illustrators, video editing, and more. Get your name out there and build your CV by being part of the number one surgery podcast in the world. You will even get paid for your work on choice projects. We are offering a two-year fellowship starting July 2024 and ending in June 2026. Only residents beginning their two-year academic development time will be considered, and the residents' institutions and mentors must approve of this fellowship. Check out the show notes for the application link. All applications are due March 25th. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Behind the Knife with the Palliative Care Team from University of Washington. I'm Virginia Wang, joined again by Lindsay Dickerson, Ali Haruta, and Dr. Katie O'Connell. Today, as part of our first journal review, we have two exciting randomized controlled trials to discuss. Dr. O'Connell, can you share some context for why we chose to discuss these two trials? Of course. There is a body of work in the medical oncology literature that has included multiple randomized controlled trials demonstrating benefits of early palliative care for patients with lung, GI, and hematologic malignancies. Lindsay, can you tell us about the kind of benefits they have seen? Absolutely. The list is long, and we know this both from the data as well as our own clinical experiences. Benefits include improved patient quality of life, emotional well-being, and symptom management, decreased anxiety and hopelessness, enhanced goal concordant care, decreased caregiver burden and distress, reduced costs and decreased utilization of non-beneficial medical care at the end of life, and even prolonged survival in some populations. Similar literature previously did not exist for the surgical oncology patient population, which makes these studies unique and important. The study population in both these studies are patients undergoing non-palliative abdominal surgery for cancer. Yeah, and I think as surgeons, we're especially interested in the surgical population. So looking at palliative care in this space is really interesting to us. The first trial we'll be discussing was described in the manuscript titled Effects of Specialist Palliative Care for Patients Undergoing Major Abdominal Surgery for Cancer. This was published in JAMA Surgery this past May by author Dr. Chanel and team. The primary objective of this single-center RCT conducted at Vanderbilt was to determine the effect of a specialist palliative care intervention on patients undergoing abdominal cancer operations for cure or durable control of cancer. Lindsay, tell us how the trial was designed. Sure, Allie, and fair warning, I'm going to get into a few details here. Between 2018 to 2021, 235 patients were enrolled and randomized to either the specialty palliative care intervention or usual care group in a one-to-run ratio, with 217 of these 235 patients ultimately included in the primary analysis. In addition to usual surgical care, the specialist palliative care intervention consisted of four primary elements. One, a pre-op consultation with a palliative care physician or NP 
in clinic or by phone. Two, inpatient specialist palliative care provider visits at least twice weekly during the post-op hospital stay. Three, follow-up clinic visits or phone calls with a palliative care specialist between hospital discharge and post-op day 90. And finally, an inpatient specialist palliative care visit anytime the patient was readmitted to the hospital. Eligible surgeries included your standard list of abdominal cancer operations, including gastrectomy, hepatectomy, pancreatectomy, colectomy or proctectomy meeting specific criteria given the relatively lower associated morbidity with these surgeries, radical cystectomy, pelvic exoneration, and cytoreductive surgery with or without HIPAC. Ooh, that was a lot. Virginia, can you briefly tell us about the study population? Sure. So the main takeaway is that this trial focused on patients with what were deemed to be resectable abdominal and pelvic malignancies. There are a couple of additional details to mention. So the most common malignancies were bladder, colorectal, and pancreatic cancer. About 60% of the patients in the study had stage 3 or 4 disease, and about 60% of the patients received neoadjuvant therapy. One thing of note is that the vast majority of all of the study participants, over 90%, self-identified as non-Hispanic white. Although the study participants appear to have been distributed along a range of incomes and, to a lesser extent, a range of educational levels, minority patients uh, are severely underrepresented in the study population. Thank you for calling our attention to that, Virginia. We'll keep this in mind as we examine the outcomes of the study and talk about it more in a bit. So let's get into the outcomes. The primary outcome was physical and functional quality of life at post-up day 90, which was measured by what's called the FACT-G, or Functional Assessment of Cancer Therapy General, for G, Trial Outcome Index. Virginia, do you remember the four quality of life domains the FACT-G assesses? I do. They are physical well-being, emotional well-being, social or family well-being, and maybe the easiest to forget, but one of the most vitally important to patients, functional well-being. That's right. And the secondary outcomes that the study was powered to assess included 90-day overall quality of life for the FACT-G total score versus the primary outcome, which focused on just the physical and functional quality of life domains. Days alive at home until post-op day 90, which means not admitted to a hospital or seen in the emergency department, and overall survival at one year. Data was analyzed using an intention-to-treat approach. Great. Thanks for summarizing all of that for me. So let's talk about the results. Lindsay, what's the one-liner decline? Well, in a few words, there was no difference between groups in the primary or secondary outcomes. So specialist palliative care in the perioperative period for patients who underwent non-palliative surgery for abdominal cancer did not improve quality of life or survival. But I think there are more nuances to discuss, which is why we're all here. Mm, Yeah, true. So to reiterate, there were no statistically significant differences between the usual care and the specialty palliative care intervention group with regard to physical and functional quality of life, overall quality of life, days live at home until post-op day 90, and overall survival of one year. In the results, the authors also included estimates of the minimal clinically important differences, or MCID, from the literature. Dr. Call, I wasn't super familiar with this term until I read more about it. Can you share about how it's applicable to this trial? Sure. Thanks for bringing me back in. The MCID is a standard for determining the effectiveness of an intervention and measures essentially the smallest improvement that would be worthwhile or meaningful to a patient. This is an important concept in this trial because not only were there no statistically significant differences between groups, 
but there were also no clinically meaningful differences. However, the authors astutely pointed out that the median baseline FACT-G scores for all patients in this study before the intervention was higher than what is reported for the general U.S. population. So, this specific population of surgical patients may have started off with a lower palliative care need compared to other oncology or surgical patients. In this context, it may not be surprising that the study did not find clinically important differences at 90 days as measured by the MCID. What do you guys think? Well, I think these results make sense and are not necessarily contradictory to what we know about the benefits of cognitive care interventions. It stands to reason that in order for a patient to be offered a non-palliative operation, they must have a high enough baseline functional status that the surgeon believes they can tolerate a major abdominal operation without lasting negative impacts on their quality of life and functional status. Assuming appropriate patient selection for surgery, this inherently biases our study population toward patients with better functional status and quality of life compared to at least the average oncology patient, if not the general population, as the study suggested. Ali and Lindsay, what other factors do you think contributed? Yeah, this might be stating a somewhat obvious element here, but the patients in this study had less advanced cancer overall than those included in other palliative care intervention studies. They were also relatively young with a median age of 65. So again, these both factor into their functional status, being both better at the time of surgery and at 90 days post-op, given a lower likelihood of rapid cancer progression or physical decline. I agree, Allie. I would also add that I think hope plays a critically important role here, and it's something I've thought a lot about in general because in surgical oncology, like in palliative care, there's this balance and almost a harmony between providing hope and, and being realistic. Yeah, I think we're a lot more familiar with this balance in the medical oncology population, for example. It's important to be honest and realistic when disclosing serious news, like a poor prognosis, which can significantly decrease the mood and quality of life of patients. But then you also want to provide a hope that we have options to treat them as a whole person. We aren't going to abandon them, even though we can't cure their cancer, we can still help make their remaining time worthwhile to them. That's absolutely right. And I think the situation here is different from what you were just talking about in medical oncology. These patients in the surgical oncology world are going into surgery with hope for what they've been told is a curative or disease-controlling surgery. So once they've recovered from the operation in the short term, their physical, social, functional, and especially emotional quality of life and well-being is unsurprisingly similar to what it was preoperatively. I've personally even seen this in patients who return to clinic after a successful oncologic surgery. I think you're right. There is something about that idea of cure that brings this hope that's hard to quantify. I also just wanted to note that there is benefit demonstrated in medical oncology populations undergoing non-surgical treatments with curative intent, such as stem cell transplants. So the opportunity for cure is not the only factor that may have contributed to the lack of effect seen in the surgical oncology population, but certainly the idea of cure is an important source of hope. So essentially, these patients may not have had specific palliative care needs at the time of intervention, but that doesn't mean that introducing the topic of palliative care or discussing prognosis, for example, early in the course of cancer for these patients is not beneficial. It's just a matter of how we measure the expected benefits. What do you think, Dr. O'Connell? Well, I think that selection of measurable primary outcome is 
really key for detecting differences in standard care versus palliative intervention studies. If the author selected quality of communication with the medical team or advanced directive completion or extended the duration of the study to capture recurrence of disease, which usually doesn't occur within the study period of 90 days post-op, there may have been a detectable difference. One last thing before we move on from this study, I think it's important to circle back about the demographic factors that we mentioned at the beginning of our discussion. As the authors of this paper are very well aware, 90 to 95% of the patients recruited for this study self-identified as non-Hispanic white. So racial and ethnic minority populations are vastly underrepresented here. The authors also noted that patients with higher education and the ability to travel for care, given that this study was conducted at a tertiary referral center, were overrepresented in the study population as well. Particularly since minoritized patients consistently have worse outcomes compared with non-Hispanic white patients in so many different areas of healthcare, including oncology, more outreach is warranted to engage underrepresented minority patients and address these disparities. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. To that point, Virginia, there's a study by Dr. Ingersoll colleagues that we'll include in the show notes evaluating racial and ethnic differences in prognosis communication during inpatient palliative care consults for patients with cancer. The study found, unfortunately, that prognosis communication occurred less frequently for Black and Latino patients and included fewer optimistic cues. So I think that the low diversity of the study is important to note, like you did, and how palliative care interventions affect outcomes for minority patients specifically widespread their study. I wonder if the results of the study would be the same at other centers providing cancer care that serve different populations. Although so many specialty cancer centers are tertiary referral centers, it would be difficult. Yeah, while the majority of our audience here likely practices in academic centers where palliative care is integrated into surgical care to some extent, um, it, it is important to realize that this is novel to most non-academic and rural surgery practices. So the results of palliative care studies may not therefore really be widely applicable. We'll keep these limitations in mind as we move on to our next randomized controlled trial. This trial is described in the paper, Effective Perioperative Palliative Care on Health-Related Quality of Life Among Patients Undergoing Surgery for Cancer by Dr. Aslaxon and colleagues also published in May of this past year in JAMA Network Open. This was a multi-center trial that recruited patients at five sites with upper GI cancer undergoing operations with curative intent who had not previously received specialist palliative care. The majority of patients in this study had a primary pancreatic malignancy. This study's patient population also self-identified as majority non-Hispanic white, although minority patients were somewhat better represented in this multi-center study. 
a majority of all of these patients, around 70% in the control arm and around 60% in the intervention arm, had a college degree or higher. This study also recruited a slightly more even distribution of men and women. Lindsay, what else should we know about the study design? Always making me go into the details of the study design. <laughs> uh, so in addition to usual surgical care, including pre-op and post-op visits, patients assigned to the intervention group met either in person or via phone with a member of an interprofessional palliative care specialist team prior to surgery, one week after surgery, and one, two, and three months after surgery, with additional visits scheduled at the discretion of the patient, surgical team, or palliative care team. These specialists were either hospice and palliative medicine boarded MDs, ARNPs, social workers, pharmacists, or chaplains trained in palliative care with additional specific training about GI malignancies. The visits most often involved rapport building, symptom management, illness education, and coping with serious illness. Virginia, what was a key difference that you noticed in the usual care group for this study? Well, this study was designed so that patients in the usual care group could actually receive a palliative care consultation if the surgical team requested it. And the surgical teams were encouraged to follow NCCN recommended triggers to involve specialty palliative care consultation. All right, so what about the study outcomes? So the study utilized several scales to assess their primary outcomes. They're listed in more detail in the show notes, so I'm not going to go into every single one, but basically they looked at health-related physical and emotional quality of life and mood symptoms. They then calculated a summary score looking at several different domains. Lindsay, can you tell us what those are? Yeah, they might be hard to remember all these, but luckily I have them written here. Cognition, depression, fatigue, pain, physical, sleep, and social. That's right. So the primary study outcome was difference in patient-reported health-related quality of life at three months after surgery. Exploratory subgroup analyses were planned as related to race, ethnicity, and study site. And now, the moment we've been waiting for, Virginia taken away with the results. Well, as in the prior study, no statistically significant differences were identified between the control and intervention groups in any of the health-related quality of life metrics. There were also no significant differences in mortality between the two groups. It is interesting to see that 20 of the 177 patients randomized to the control arm were actually referred for palliative care consultations during the first three months post-op, and five of the patients were referred for hospice care. Notably, one center accounted for the vast majority of these crossover referrals, and that is the same center that had the highest enrollment in the study. This demonstrates some variable practice of routine integration of palliative care into surgical treatment nationwide. Lindsay, do you want to talk a little bit about what your takeaways were from this? Sure. And I do think that's a key point in the, the difference in this control population that uh, the surgeons had the opportunity to refer patients for palliative care treatment and that 20 of the patients randomized to the control group were referred. So overall, like the first trial we discussed, this trial also focused on patients undergoing operations with curative intent. The authors of this study also noted that as we have more nuanced discussions about the best timing for palliative care interventions for surgical oncology patients, the particular juncture described in both of these trials may be too early in the patient's cancer journey to measure the benefit of specialty or specialist palliative care engagement. And this is like what you touched on earlier, Dr. O'Connell. I'm curious to hear what additional thoughts you might have. Overall, it seems that it may be more difficult to demonstrate a measurable impact of specialty palliative care engagement at this time point for patients with higher baseline quality of life 
and milder cancer-related symptoms, even if they have a serious diagnosis like an upper GI malignancy requiring major abdominal surgery. I also noticed that 119 eligible patients actually declined to participate in this study, and the most common reasons they gave for declining to participate included being too overwhelmed, stressed, or generally tired. A lot of what palliative care visits could have addressed would be those specific feelings, so it is possible that we missed some patients who could have had a measurable benefit because they self-selected out of the study. Yeah, I'm curious to know if those patients eventually saw palliative care as part of their treatment. It sounds like potentially there would be something that comes down the pipeline that triggers it. Another thing I just wanted to point out is that they found no measurable harm in the intervention group for patients or surgeons. And this might seem obvious or not super relevant at first glance, but conversations in the palliative care space are often really difficult. They touch on sensitive topics. So it's important to see that these discussions didn't cause increased distress or actually worsen quality of life. This is just from my clinical experience, not from the data, but often people are really reluctant to talk about palliative options in addition to disease-directed therapies. They think it might be viewed as them giving up or causing patients to lose hope. And there's this idea of like fighting. We always want to keep fighting. So you obviously have to meet patients where they're at. You can't push them to talk about things that they aren't ready to think about. But it's really important to remember that palliative care can and should be delivered in parallel with life-sustaining treatment. One doesn't cancel out the other. So while there weren't measurable benefits to specialty palliative care co-management in this study, surgeons should still feel empowered to integrate primary palliative care into their patient visits, eliciting their hopes, their goals, their concerns, building rapport, so that they can think about what treatment recommendations make the most sense for each patient. It's really hard, in my opinion, to find the right way to measure the value of a lot of these palliative care visit components, such as rapport building, providing space for the patient, or just offering support during a difficult time. Maybe I'm just on my soapbox, but Dr. O'Connell, what else would you add? At the risk of repeating myself, had the primary outcome been measured beyond three months, you know, perhaps at like a year when there would have been cancer recurrences and when the palliative care team utilizes that built rapport, that is where the differences will be measured. Much, much easier said than done in a randomized control trial. Hmm. Thank you, everyone, for a really lively discussion about these two seminal palliative care randomized controlled trials in the surgical oncology patient population. While both of these were technically negative studies, in that neither of the studies detected a statistically significant difference in primary or secondary outcomes as related to health-related quality of life scores, there are still many interesting insights to be gained from these trials and more room for further study. We would be particularly interested to see more research centering minoritized and marginalized patient populations and their engagement with palliative care during their cancer journeys. Of course, recognizing that there are limitations inherent to conducting these types of studies at tertiary referral centers. Well, we hope we shed some light on these RCTs for our listeners. And with that, until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.